0: Welcome to the X Podcast, your complete source for crisis, emergency, business continuity and security preparedness interviews, news, and much more. Now your host, he creates chaos for a living, Rob Burton.
1: And welcome to episode 96 of the PreparedX podcast. I'm your host, Rob Burton. And just before we get started today, I want to let you know that this episode is brought to you by the International Crisis Management Conference. The conference is June 7th and 8th of this year, 2022. And you can get more information via crisisconferences.com. That's crisisconferences.com. Uh, check out uh, the conference this year. And we hope to see you in a Newport, Rhode Island in June. Well, today I'm joined by Tony Kaufman, who is the, CEO, or the co-founder and CEO of Anthony Kaufman Consulting. Welcome, Tony, from California.
0: Thank you very much, Rob. It's really great to be here. Appreciate you having me.
1: Yeah, no problem. And before we jump into um, you know, Q&A here, Tony, can you let our listeners know a little bit more about your career so far, please?
0: Sure, I'd love to. Um, I was educated as a lawyer um, uh, here in Los Angeles, where I'm located, and joined the firm of Gibson, Dunn & Crutcher, and was there for five years until I um, started the in-house legal department at Princess Cruises, the the famous cruise company. And even from the beginning of starting that that department, I became part of the crisis management team. Um, Princess Cruises was part of a UK company called P&O, and P&O spun off Princess Cruises, and I became general counsel of that company, which was called P&O uh, Princess Cruises. And um, I actually got to move to London uh, to be the general counsel of that company. During the time we were uh, in London, we uh, flirted with Royal Caribbean, another large uh, cruise company, and ended up merging with um, Carnival Corporation, which is the largest leisure and cruise company in the world. After um, I worked my way out of a job as general counsel, because they already had one, I, uh, I was asked to move back Uh, To Princess Cruises and continue on in my legal role. And I also moved into the commercial side of the business and I managed supply chain onboard revenue, which was uh, all the businesses on the cruise ships that, uh, you know, charge money for the products and services such as the spa, the casino, the retail operations, photography, internet, those kinds of things. And then I also became responsible for port and shore, o- shore operations, which were shore excursions, terminal facilities, um, passenger logistics, and things like that. And so I did that for a while. And then um, Princess Cruises decided that it wanted to uh, expand its product into Asia. Mm-hmm. Um, they had already cruised into Asia, but they wanted to actually provide products for the local markets, um, tailor-made um, for ships that were home port in um. Countries like China, Japan, Taiwan, Singapore, Hong Kong, and Korea. So I dropped everything at that point and focused my entire um, uh, time on uh, developing uh, the Princess Cruises product in the Asian market. And I did that uh, successfully for five or six years. And after that, we had plateaued and had a good operation and a solid foundation in Asia. And um, it was taxing on me to uh, fly back and forth once a month to Asia from Los Angeles. And so I moved into um, what was known as Holland America Group, which is a group of four brands within Carnival Corporation, Holland America, Mm -hmm. Princess Cruises, Seabourn, and P&O Cruises Australia. And I moved into the executive team um, as an executive vice president um, on the leadership team responsible for finance, legal, IT, and HR. So I went back into the general counsel role at that point. And now I do what I like to do as a consultant, um, focusing on crisis management, risk management, and the role of culture in success and failure.
1: Great. Well, I appreciate that uh, background there, Tony. And um, having worked in the the port space myself uh, many years ago uh, on the International Ship and Port Facility Security Code implementation ISPS Code you're probably very familiar with it mm-hmm. uh, yeah um, so yeah so uh, I think uh, you know we have some um, some some background uh, there in terms of that we did a you know fair amount of uh, planning uh, for ports and shipping companies uh, when that um, code came okay. out just just after 11 so we did it through Lloyd's Register of oh, it was Lloyd's Register um, sure. back then not not Lloyd's of London the insurance of course. But uh, so right. great. Uh, okay, then let's get uh, let's get started, Tony. In terms of um, what we're going to be covering today, um, I, I know the presentation "Leading a Crisis from the Eye of a Storm" is what uh, the presentation title um, is all about. Here, can you give our listeners a little bit of insight in terms of uh, the COVID nineteen outbreak incident and uh, a little bit of background on that? Would be great.
0: Sure, yeah. It's uh, it was it was quite a it was it was quite an incident that happened at the very, very beginning of COVID. So really to encapsulate it, it was really on the cutting edge of COVID uh, and nobody knew anything about COVID at the time. So um, on February fourth, twenty twenty, 10 cases of COVID were confirmed on board the ship while the ship was in Yokohama Bay, Japan. Um, and um, every day after that. Uh, the number of COVID cases increased. It became the largest outbreak outside of China. Um, and and really, we were the first U.S. firm to deal with it. Um, and um, really, at that time, as I say, very little was known about it. There were 2,666 passengers um, on board that were placed in quarantine. Um, and the quarantine was immediately managed by the Japanese government. There was 1,045 crew on board that were tasked with um, uh, Managing uh, the outbreak uh, amongst themselves, but also you know, serving the passengers who were quarantined in their cabins. And ultimately, you know, when we went out there, it was it was a life and death scenario.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Nothing was known about COVID other than it was very contagious and potentially deadly, particularly amongst the aged and infirmed, which is a large part of the cruise passenger base. So it was, um, you know, it was, it was it was it was very different than anything um, we had ever encountered before. Um, And we knew it was going to last at least one month because the quarantine was called for 14 days, and then we knew we would have to quarantine the the crew after that. So it was just, um, you know, it was just a completely novel um, emergency um, that had life and death um, at its core, and we didn't know how it was going to turn out.
1: Yeah, it was fascinating at the time watching it unfold and there was, you know, several other um, high profile incidents with, um, you know, um, you know, cruise liners, um, you know, after this, but I think this one really uh, led the way in early COVID days. Um, you know, what was your role during the incident? Um, you know, I, you know we, I, I mentioned the term incident there, and us, you know, those of us in the field, you know, we we typically, you know, define that incident as something that's you know could become a crisis. I assume, of course, uh, with the title, it, it became a crisis fairly quickly.
0: Yeah, now exactly, um, and I'll, I'll get into that as well in terms of um, you know when it when it moved from an incident um, into a crisis. Um, but one of my tenants is always, you know, you got you to plan for the worst immediately and you got to move quickly. Um, and i will explain that a little bit later. But um, so initially um, I was sent out to assess the situation because when I went out, there was actually no known outbreak on board the ship. Um, it turns out that the outbreak and, and um, the confirmed cases of COVID were confirmed while I was flying from Los Angeles to Japan. So initially the role became to assess and make sense of what was needed and form a team to manage the crisis from Japan. Um, and then it quickly evolved because we recognized that we needed somebody in place in Japan to manage the crisis itself. Um, so my role then became um, what we refer to as the incident commander, which is a term used under the emergency response plan of Princess yep. Cruises. Um, and it's you know common kind of quasi military term. I think it's, it's, it's pretty common. Yep. Um, And so we moved um, the management of the crisis from kind of our central locations, which um, we have emergency response centers, very sophisticated emergency response centers in Los Angeles and Seattle, which is where um, Holland America Group is based. Um, And it was moved basically from there um, as we built up the emergency response center um, in Japan. And my role there was to put the organization together, lead the team, Um, um, create the structure, um, create the meeting structure and schedule, um, lead the meetings, focus on the critical path, provide support to the operations and give guidance um, and make decisions when needed, and lead discussions with the governments um, as a senior point of contact, and basically to pull all the pieces together to make a path and figure out how we're going to resolve it. Um, including you know, in the management of communications which became so important so that was that was my overall role is to is is, is to get things done and figure out a way to 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 get everybody um, home safely um, and other things that were part of our uh, mission statement that we created
1: yeah, really important to have that mission statement. So, so we touched on it there in terms of that tipping point. Um, you know, when did it move from an incident into a crisis? In, in terms of um, you know, uh, you know, your actions and and the situation, and what was right. the major difference for you? was it as it related to an incident to the crisis. Yeah, sure,
0: sure, absolutely I understand the question. So, um, so in the cruise industry, um, you know, many incidents occur. It's um, you know, an amazingly interesting. Uh, industry where you have these, you know, large cities at sea, basically that are self-contained um, and have everything little cities have, um, and as a result of that, things happen, and so um, incidents like persons overboard or even deaths on ships, hurricanes, typhoons that disrupt routes, these are all routine um, in the sense that they're incidents that we we do need to man up or person up our um, emergency response organization, but we we. We've managed them so many times; we don't really consider those to be a crisis in the sense that we know how to manage them. The RO stands up, and um, you know they get managed through through the normal the normal course and the playbook that we have for those kinds of incidents. There were two points um, at the uh, uh, the Diamond Princess that for me created a uh, an initial crisis and then a full bone crisis. Yeah. One it was on February first, 2020. There was social media alerting. People to the fact that a prior passenger um, was diagnosed with COVID. Um, he was um, he joined the ship in Tokyo on January 20th and got off the ship in Hong Kong on January 25th, but he had no symptoms um, and didn't you know didn't go to the the, the medical center or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and that so that social media post became a crisis of communication. Um, in terms of we know we needed to respond, we need to get out there, we needed to find the facts, and then we needed to go back to the, um, the passengers on board um, and, and all the stakeholders to understand what it meant and um, what we were going to do about it. So um, as a result of that social media post, the ship was denied entry into Naha, um, which is in Okinawa, Japan, and the ship was sent back early to Yokohama. Um, And then testing of passengers was going to take place on February 3 in the Yokohama Bay. Um, The ship was not allowed um, to dock um, into Japan until they had done the testing. Um, And then um, the real crisis, I think, hit um, on February 4 where the diagnosis of those 10 COVID um, patients Uh, was made. And at that point, you know, that was a full bone, uh, full bone crisis. Um, Japan ended up offloading those 10 people, um, Uh, from the ship that was still in the bay, Um, a a quarantine of 14 days was declared. um, And then the issues just kept kept coming and coming and coming. Mm -hmm. So at that point, we knew we were facing something that we had never faced before.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, What was the biggest challenge? And why during that time? Well, um, you know,
0: every, everything was a huge challenge at that, <laughs> at, that, at that point. There's, there's no one way to define, you know, because just things kept coming and things you wouldn't expect came coming, and it was just, yeah. you know, so. But, but to, if I was going to narrow it narrow it down, um, I would say there were so many there were so many challenges driven by the fact that the the incident was so novel. Um, there was no clear path to resolution, um, and the end result was unknown. And, and as I said, you know, this. You know, we considered this to be a potential life and death situation. And right. we didn't know how it was going to pan out. And we didn't know if no- nobody was going to die or you right. know, the worst case yeah. scenario was was, yeah. go- was going to happen. And it, it, so that was kind of you know, just the scary background of, of the whole situation. Um, I think among the biggest challenges was making sure that we were able to coordinate with the Japanese government. I mean, they held the key to what was going on. Um, And getting the communication straight. So when I got there, there were there was no meetings or direct communication with the Japanese government. There was only some quarantine management Mm -hmm. that was going on board the ship. And that was kind of happening in isolation. So there's basically no communication. So we needed to find out what was going on and coordinate. Um, you know, both activities and communications and everything with the Japanese government, and always be in line with them. It's really important to be in lockstep with the authorities when you're dealing with a crisis, as you know. As you know. Okay. So, um, we needed to get that up and running as soon as possible and, and, and work with them to try and figure out a plan. Um, and then the second thing I think is communications. You know, communications is, is um, you know, really critical. Um, And there were just a huge number of stakeholders on the communication side. We had passengers, we had crew, we had the Japan government, which was split into different ministries, including the Ministry of Health and then the Ministry of Land, Infrastructure, Transport and Travel, which was responsible for managing the, the cruise operations in Japan. And then we started having conversations with the governments of all the countries from which citizens... Uh, You know, we're on board. So, you know, Canada was calling us and the UK was calling us and Australia. And um, and we had passengers from from all over the world and crew from all over the world. So Mm -hmm. we needed to have that communication set up. We were communicating with the CDC and the WHO WHO. We were um, communicating with families of passengers, um, company employees, both ship and on the shore to let them know what was going on. And then, of course, we had senior management we needed to communicate with, travel agents. And then, of course, we had the whole media side um, of the communications, um, both in terms of traditional media, social media. So really, as the crisis uh, manager and and incident commander, um, I probably spent almost half my time. Um, managing communications because yeah. they had to be spot on, they had to be correct, they had to be on point, and they had to be kind of, you know, transparent. Yeah,
1: um,
0: yeah. And and but we didn't want to say anything that was wrong or we can be corrected, and we had to stay in lockstep with the Japanese government because they were also giving press conferences and press releases and giving information out there. So it was a whole network of communication that needed to be be handled, and I think that was a that was a
1: huge challenge. Yeah, tremendous amount of stakeholder groups there that you mentioned, and uh, you know all those different communications. So, from, from a you know organization standpoint, from a briefing standpoint, and remaining on point with your team, uh, how did you ensure that, that uh, they were organized throughout the crisis?
0: Yeah, so. I think in this situation, we were very lucky to have, you know, an established emergency response organization and process that we, you know, that we could lean on, that we utilize. So immediately we stood, we stood that up and we used that as the foundation. And then we folded the the Japan crisis management organization kind of into that. So, you know, we would have um, clear lines of command um, organized by departments. And so, you know, we, we, um, we basically got I got there and I just started immediately whiteboarding out um, the organization that we needed. I was thinking about the organization that we had at head office, you know, based upon the emergency response organization that we that we're used to using. So we created clear lines of command to me um, and organized by department. So the the key departments were hotel operations that took care of the passengers, fleet operations that took care of the ship. Mm -hmm. And of course, we had medical, government relations, HR, both ship and shore, supply chain, communications slash PR, um, administration, and then we had a legal and finance overlay. So I think those were the you know the key um, lines of of operations that that we needed to, um, to to structure and have reported to me. And then what I tried, to, and then we um, uh, appointed leads for each of those. Um, and then we try to let them get on with it, and then filter up all the in- information uh, to me. Um, as I mentioned earlier, we, we collectively agreed a mission statement. Um, it was very important at this point in time, you know, when you when you create an organization um, in such chaos and a crisis, you have to um, create um, transparency and bring people in so they get buy-in and they totally understand what's going on and everybody needs to be on the same page. So one of the one of the principles i always had was be totally open and transparent and i didn't you know i didn't know everything and i wanted to make sure that i got guidance from my team as to uh, okay. you know how to manage the crisis what to do what not to do are we on the right path those kinds of things yeah. so we agreed a mission statement everyone home safely cooperate with the J- japan and other governments get the crew co- quarantines ashore and not on the ship and secure the ship i mean those were the basic critical path items Um, that we all agreed. And then we put together cadence of meetings throughout the day that gave everybody the opportunity to understand what was going on and advise on the critical path. So we were lucky enough to have operations across the world. We established a follow the sun uh, routine where we had meetings Japan morning, um, where we got information from the ship and what was going on and agreed what the critical path items were for the day. Mm -hmm. Then we had an afternoon meeting, which is when West Coast um, in the US, Seattle and Los Angeles woke up and we could give them an update and they could could give us an update. And then we had a nighttime meeting where um, we wrapped everything up from the Japan side and then handed over uh, to any any critical issues that needed to be managed from from, uh, the other side of the world. and um, had that 24/7 um, ability, and then I thought finally on, on how how it was managed, the management of the meetings I think became critical uh, to be transparent and to get all input and continually set the tone um, of how are we going to manage the crisis. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, I w- you know we we created a no blame culture and a safe space, um, or you know as much as we could, so that people could um, know that they were free to innovate because you have to innovate um, when, you're, when you're facing um, issues that you've never faced before. And they know that they, they, you know, they're not gonna be blamed for doing something wrong. Because if you're under the pressure of blame then you don't speak up, you don't innovate, you don't, you know, you don't go, go out there and do something that really needs to get done. And so we had a lot of conversations around we're in this together, there's no blame. Um, and um, you're really trying to set a tone that people could understand um, that, you know, this is a, this is a good place to work. It's a safe place to work. Let's get down and do it. Let's get down and do it. Let's not listen to all the noise that's going on outside. We know right. what we need yep. to do. We've got a critical path. Let's yep. focus on that and let, and let the chips fall where they may. Yeah. <laughs> <after> <laughs> <that>. <laughs> it,
1: it sounds like you built uh, situational awareness, which is obviously critical, right. And then, and then managed it. And you mentioned that noise that was ongoing. I'm sure, um, the pressure of that was, it was pretty tremendous, you know, based on the scale of the event.
0: Yeah, well, um, you know, the, the key was, to, was to, for us to remain calm, right? Um, right? And it was high risk, high stress, and there were many factors to this, which, you know, which I can go over, but ultimately it was a life and death situation. Uh, media was, was all over the place, um, you know, constant criticism and blame about how this could have happened, But you need, but you need to shield yourself from that and free people up to do their best work and not worry about being blamed, right? So as I said, we created a safe place, transparency, no playbook, do your best, um, and, and ask them for their help and guidance. I mean, I needed their help to make sure we were on the right path. If anybody had um, anything to say or, um, you know, an opportunity to provide feedback, it was totally open. If people wanted to change the way we were doing things, we would constantly go around the room and make sure that everybody agreed that we were on the, on the right, right path, you know, and that, I think that really um, played into, um, yeah. you know, the, the eventual success. That we had um, one thing that I thought was critical was um, and a critical leader uh, critical um, leadership lesson is we started to discuss how do you make decisions when you've never made this kind of decision before and everything is so new mm-hmm. right? and so Princess Cruises was lucky enough to have very well established core values um, that that people understood and knew ahead of time. And so we were able, and we decided, you know, verbally and expressed that we would make decisions based on our core values, um, and people knew what those core values were, um, and it gave them a sense of comfort that, um, you know, we were going to be doing the right thing, um, and um, that it's something they could relate to. And one of the one of the key things that I always talk about at, at this point is making sure that. You know, you're never too small, and it's never too soon to have core values at a company, because you never know when you're going to need them. And really, really you should always have them. And you always need to know, um, you know, and tell you and explain to your company how you expect them to behave. Um, But in this case, you know, if you don't have core values and you end up in a crisis, then it's too late to create core values at that point. Um, and you know, you're going to be at a disadvantage. And then you have to invent how are you going to, you know, what paradigm and what framework are you going to use to make make really important decisions. And so I think that was that was critical. And, and all of this creating a safe space, using um, you know, using emotional intelligence, using yeah. um, um, core values, uh, really allowed innovation to take place. Um, And, um, and overcome the challenges that were, that were, that we faced
1: yeah i think i think a lot of organisations don't, don't really do a great job in linking crisis management back to the you know the larger uh, strategy within the organisation it has to be linked back to the bigger picture and uh, you know you know, the, you know the policy and and the procedures that go into that and 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 giving um, giving the leash to those you know leaders and, and letting them you know be able to you know manage um, the, the events and the, and the and the challenges in front of them and i think uh, you know some organisations struggle with that
0: Yeah, absolutely. I I felt so well equipped, in a sense, because I had um, never managed anything quite like that before, but I had managed a lot of crises before, but I had, you know, I had the foundation, you know, I had, um, you know, I had, um, I had the core values, Um, you know, I had kind of like, you know, the respect of the team, um, being a senior leader in the organization for a long time. Um, And that gave me, you know, a good, good base to, to move forward on.
1: Yeah, you mentioned in uh, in the last uh, segment there about uh, calmness. Um, you know, why is creating calm during the chaos essential? Well, um, I
0: mean, I guess one story is um. You know, I, the, the, the crisis in Japan started on February 1, really, when the, when the ship was refused entry into Naha. And so mm-hmm. our local team was dealing with that. When I walked into the office, um, the local office on February 6, and I just walked through the door and you know, it was very quiet. The office was full and then the people just stared at me. I'm like, wow, you know, this is like <laughs> they're looking, they're looking to me. <laughs> I'm gonna have to, I'm gonna have to up my game, you know. I'm gonna have to do something here, and you know, yeah. it's really interesting. After I wrote my um, presentation, I started, I did it kind of the reverse way. I I wrote the presentation from my actual experience, and then I did research on crisis management, you know, kind of like textbook research. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it's amazing how the theory aligned so perfectly yeah, with the that's, practice that, that's
1: a great story tony yeah thanks for sh- that's important to share as well because it's, you know it's, we it's know.
0: amazing and so then so at that point people were staring at me i'm like i've got to remain calm i've got you know i've got to show them confidence i've got to let them know that this is going to be all right yep. that we're going to get through this and you know and so and then i started the research after after it and i i wrote about you know like things like deliberate calm is actually a thing. (laughs) And (laughs) I didn't know it was, I didn't know there was a name for it, but I practiced it, you know, and I just instinctively knew that that was something. And so, and so it's, you know, you got to remain calm um, because first of all, as a leader, that's what you, you need to do because if you're not calm, then who is going to be calm? Um, (laughs) Right. And so but also, as I mentioned earlier, creating a calm atmosphere, creating a safe space for people to do their work, know that they're being led, know that they have input. Um, you know, that's all That's all part of, of being calm and, and setting an environment and an atmosphere where people can do their best work. And even though there is, you know, everything else going on around us, we talked about it in that way, right? And, you, right. and so people, people say like, how do you, like people don't actually talk about what you actually do to create that calm Mm -hmm. you know it's like yeah you got to create a safe space okay now let's move on you created a safe space (laughs) now what happens well let's talk about how you create a safe space right right? yeah
1: yeah yeah. Um,
0: it's it's how you act it's how you talk it's how you interact with people it's facing the brutal facts that this is a difficult situation but we're going to get through it and we're going to use our core values and i'm going to ask you how are you feeling how are you doing
1: right emotional Um, intelligence piece yeah
0: yeah exactly and so you know here's a story I was, you know, and I always made it a point to walk around the office, um, see how people are doing, ask how they're doing, ask if they need help, you know, because I was a resource person. It's like, how can I help you get your job done? Um, So I would just do that once or twice a day, at least. And so I was walking around the office one day and I saw two people crying. Um, This was like in the middle of the pandemic when, um, you know, the number of cases on board was skyrocketing, the number of cases around the world was skyrocketing, the number of cases in Japan was skyrocketing. And um, they, they were crying. And so I walked over to them and I said, hey, you know, obviously you're, you're very upset. Like, what can I do to help? And they were just saying they were having a hard time with it, um, being there and, and the whole situation. And, you know, I don't think they were going to ask to go home. But I said, look, you know, if, I understand this is really difficult. Um, you know, it's a new situation for all of us. If you, if you can't be here for your emotional health, if you need to go home, tell me. And it's absolutely fine. You can go home. And, you know, no recriminations. I totally understand it. You need to take care of yourself and, and the relief in their faces and uh, you know, and, and all that said, you know, you know, I, I I'm really uncomfortable here. I need to go home. And so I said, totally fine. Go home, take care of yourself. Thank you so much for coming and we'll be fine. And so they left and, and, and people saw that and people knew that like, you know, they weren't stuck there (laughs) sometimes (laughs) everybody wants to get out of dodge at some point right but people weren't stuck there people understood that there was a human side of dealing with people and even in the most extreme crisis you have to you have to deal on a human level with people and i think you know that was really appreciated and again it allowed, allowed us to to do our to do our
1: job yeah, it's, it's fascinating. I, I did quite a bit of research on the uh, Chilean miners, uh, and that uh, the thirty-three miners, thirty-three miners that were trapped underground for sixty-nine mm-hmm. days, and uh, you know, some fascinating. And, and it was, you know, it was a lot of that leadership uh, traits that you mentioned there in terms of you know understanding um, who those um, you know personnel are and the characters, and and uh, you know letting them have uh, the, the free reign to come up with ideas. So I, I know on that yeah. in in that case there was um, um, a, a young. A, a a young gentleman who came in he was you know i think he was only a teenager he might have been 17 or 18 and um you know he was talking about different ways that um, they could should consider um to you know try and rescue the, the miners i know they came up with three different operations kind of a, a quick one you know it was high risk and then kind have a, sl- a slower one and then a you know a really slow one that would take months to get down and and get the miners out but it would be more successful so it's fascinating to hear um, those types of dynamics and letting you know letting your letting your team really you know come up with some ideas that uh, you might not be thinking of
0: our team just did such amazing things so we had to figure out how to feed basically three thousand four thousand people right. um, when the kitchens were being shut down and we were going over their transition so we actually hired world central kitchen um you know which is the great organization from jose andres and we hired them they came out and they helped us and figured out um how to how to make to get food made and deliver yeah. it to the ship and we we took trucks and outfitted them so the food could be hot um, we had to establish um, um, places where um, disinfection could, could take place, and we built a disinfection place out of a out of a shipping container. Um, we innovated on communicate on the communication side by um, you know creating videos and. Um, uh, um, responding to, you know, taking, taking, I think the message directly to the media mm-hmm. um, in, in terms of, um, you know, the Twitter and the, the Facebook and, and getting our message out there and not necessarily reacting. Like I said, we did a lot of videos. The, the captain did um, three announcements a day. So there's a lot of innovation on the communication side, on the operation side. It was, you know, there are amazing things being done. There are so many stories um, um, around, you know, what, what was done on so many different fronts.
1: Yeah. Um what's one major thing that you would do differently if uh, if it happened all over again which I'm sure you would you would not be looking forward to but
0: no no hopefully something like this won't won't happen again. Um, you know that's a, that's a very um hard question to ask um because it was so novel like how do you right. how do you do how do you do better in a in an unforeseeable situation, um, I guess the one thing I would say is, you know, the risk management side of me would say I'm a big believer in preventing a crisis before they happen, right? Mm-hmm. So, and hindsight is a wonderful thing. And you can always almost find fault, um, you know, after yep. the fact. Um, so I, 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 I would normally say that we could have done a better job of preventing the crisis. But when you look back, um, you know, patient zero boarded on January 20th yep. and got mm-hmm. off on January 25, mm-hmm. he had no symptoms while on board. And, you know, there were no, nothing was known and there were no relevant restrictions in place at the time. So, you know, I I can't, it's very, pretty unusual to not, you know, to to look back and and not find a, you know, something that, that could have been done. Um, But this one is, is a hard one uh, to find. I think maybe if I had to pick something when, like I said, when I got to Tokyo on February 6th, the team had been dealing with the cruise disruptions since February 1, and they were already tired and exhausted and, you know, very stressed. And so even though we acted very quickly, I would say that, that, um, you know, maybe we could have um, gotten our, gotten the local um, team support um, a little earlier, even though, of course, we were supporting them from our emergency response organization on the West Coast, but, um, cool. you know, things like that. It's always, it's never too early to move.
1: Yeah, it's yeah, never yeah. too
0: early to think about the downside and just, you know, think through the different scenarios and say, yeah, you know, let's even though hopefully this doesn't happen, let's let's act as though it it does and and moving quickly is is one of the biggest
1: yeah, that, that's a one that great hard. point. I, I always discuss this in uh, some of the exercises that we run, run Tony. And, uh, you know, I, I always like to say, go big early. So bring yeah. the team together on a wider scale as much as you can. You can scale back. And if nothing, if it doesn't transpire to be uh, turning into a crisis, then you can obviously, you know, it's, it's better than trying to add these pieces on as you go, right? And then all of a yeah. sudden, you know, you kind of caught off guard. So that's a no, great, no, po- exactly. great, great point. Exactly. There, right? There's
0: no harm. In, there's no, no harm. Yeah. But, you know, there could be significant downside if you're if you're too slow. So,
1: so um yeah. yeah yeah well i just I, I, while we're, while we're on the um you know the the doing you know things differently um you know w- was there an after action review or report i'm sure there was some kind of significant uh, follow-ons afterwards um uh, was, was that a document internal document i'm sure certain governments probably you know requested that as well you know the japanese government um, was were they part of that
0: the japanese government did do kind of their own um assessment after Mm -hmm. the fact yes so um you know that's about all i can say (laughs) about about that but um yeah there were you know obviously a lot of um lessons learned um you know from from all sides and you know one of the things we did up front which i which i give great credit to are the core values um and um, kind of like the mission statement and purpose statement of princess cruises was and this also goes back to emotional intelligence is we recognized from the very beginning this was a huge event
1: mm-hmm. and
0: not much was known about um COVID at the time and so we it, you know we opened ourselves up and we opened the ship up and we opened up our meetings to the cdc and the who and to the japanese government and really anybody who was you know could help. We were open to getting help, and we also knew that you know there could be information happening um, as a, you know as part of the, the incident um, that could be very valuable in fighting the um, fighting the, the disease going forward. Yeah, so um, you know, we made that decision very upfront, and and even though you know let's say from the legal liability standpoint, you know the lawyers might say no, don't do that. Right. Um, you know we took a much higher view. Of you know our role in the history of COVID, mm-hmm. um, and knew that you know the right thing to do was just be completely transparent and and get help from those that could help us, but also share any information we could for the betterment of you know fighting the disease in the in the future. And I think you know emotional intelligence mm-hmm. know, raises itself in so many different ways during during a crisis like this. It allows you to make those kinds of decisions. It engages the team. And allows you to, um, you know, form a form a team and, and innovate and create a safe space, and the, the power of emotional intelligence also goes to it's a very persuasive tool, um, yeah. and when you when you're passionate about something and and you know you there's an emotional side to getting things done and an emotional and human reason to getting things done, when you tap into that and you can explain it and people see it, um, it's a very very powerful, um, persuasive tool. Sure. Um, that that really got a lot of things done, you know, as we tried to navigate, you know, what was just a crazy, crazy time.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, well, thanks for sharing with us. Um, you, know, you know, your story here, as we start to wrap up, Tony, uh, we like to start, you know, finish off here um, with our guests her perspective on simulation exercises, I would love to hear um, what mm-hmm. you think about them and, and why they're important.
0: Well, they're critical because if you've, if you've never practiced something, you, you won't perform very well yeah. in the actual moment, right? Yeah. So, you know, they're, they're critical and they need to be done consistently, realistically, um, and seriously. And it need, they need to test all facets of the response, um, you know, operations, communications, uh, response systems and technical systems even to the point of being absurd, because in a crisis, the absurd happens. So you know, Princess did a lot of tabletop exercises regularly. We had recently done one actually before this crisis on, on, on an on-ship active shooter. Um, you know, and our drills you know, do go to the extreme. Um, we have reporters storming the offices. We change the fact patterns consistently. Mm -hmm. Um, So we'll report something that we think is correct. And then, you know, half an hour later, we have to make a correction because the information was wrong or there was Mm -hmm. a mistake made. Um, Sometimes, you know, communications are cut off. Um, And so you know, and and we, you know, we, we go to the extreme. We, if, you know, we, we involve the, we do a lot of drills with the Coast Guard, the FBI, um, you know, things like that. We even, you know, in terms of our incident response, if we, if we're doing a tabletop top drill and we need to communicate with senior management, we'll actually call senior management and say hey we're doing a drill yep. We wanted to make sure we could get a hold of you you know we right. wanted to make yeah. sure this phone number was the correct phone number for sure so everything um, is, is critical because like when, when you're in the moment you need a foundation on which to work um, and you can't make it up um, and and being in a crisis is the wrong time to try and make something up so um, you know I would say practice establish your foundation of crisis management, do as much work as you can ahead of time and put in those core values um, that you can rely on to make, make strange decisions. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, those are some, you know, those are well, you know, some of the major takeaways that, that I would have as a result of this.
1: Yeah. Well, fascinating episode today, Tony, thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much. It was
0: great, great to talk to you and, you know, happy to get the story out and, and, um, you know, be a part of uh, the crisis management network.
1: Yeah. And before we head out here, Tony, um, any final comments for our listeners? And, uh, if they want to contact you, how can they do that?
0: Yeah. So, um, I have a website that they can contact me, contact me through it's, um, www.anthonycoffmanconsulting.com. Just one word. Yep. Um, or they can email me at Anthony, uh, H Kaufman 11 at gmail. Dot com um, and happy to, you know, uh, interact with them and give them any advice they may need. And, and I have a my, my presentation is wrapped around leadership in a crisis and a lot of the leadership principles that came out of the crisis and happy to share that with anybody that's interested.
1: Great. And we'll uh, add all the links in for, for your website, Tony, your email, as well as your LinkedIn uh, profile. I know there's a QR code as well um, that uh, we'll make sure we're put on the uh, the bottom of the podcast uh, notes here.
0: Great. Yeah, I greatly appreciate that.
1: Yeah, no problem. Well, thanks again for your time today, Tony. Hopefully we'll be chatting again soon.
0: Yep. Thanks a lot, Rob. Same to you.
1: Well, that's it for episode 96 of the PreparedX podcast. Uh, Please rate us on iTunes or wherever you are listening to this episode. We appreciate you listening in. And until next time, be safe.